Hey, everybody, I found a great review. I love this. Absolutely amazing. Exclamation point five stars from B. Voss. The whole series has been great, but episode eight on sensuality, sexuality, and deconstruction was absolutely amazing. I sat and thought about so much of it for hours after. I'm going to have to go listen to that one. I know. I was like, what was on episode eight? (laughs) You guys, we so appreciate it when you leave reviews specifically and rate the show. It really helps other people to discover this content. Thanks so much. As long as you're okay with me interrupting you. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a way to have this tipped? Just tighten, tighten the sides. But tighten it when when you have it positioned in the way that you want oh. it. There you there you. Did you tighten it? It doesn't feel like. <laughs> Looks like it's like sagging it's a little bit. Yeah, you don't want it so much <laughs> under your mouth yeah. as like towards yeah. your mouth. So it's a little droopy over there. Yeah, feeling that way a lot these days. <laughs> mm-hmm. Droopy. It's We're not. just getting you all screwed in tight. <laughs> <laughs> Take it away, Ashley. From Milieu Media Group. This is Fun Parts, an exploration of sexuality and spirituality for anyone who's curious or convinced there must be more. With your hosts, Becky Patton, Latifa Alatas, Ashley Lusink, Steve Weens, and me, Luke Bronner. Fun Parts! So I had this thought a couple weeks ago, I was just driving and thinking about how so often we talk about... Jesus and the Christian tradition of the body being broken for you and all of that whole language. And I was thinking about, <laughs> I was in a season as with being a mom of all the ways I'm outputting and feeling my body being physically continually being pulled from. And as I'm breastfeeding and all these changes that have happened in the physical changes, like the ways that you are giving and giving and giving in your body not only by carrying a child and then birthing a child and then recovering from that, plus still nurturing this child, how much your body is continually being, my body is broken for you to give life to you. And the way that that shifted this context of me with this beautiful like femininity and nurturing and care and being held in safety in that. And for some reason, for all these years, as I think about like Jesus and being on the cross and the bread and all that, having it in a masculine context put this distance in it to me and shifting it into the feminine made it so much more just intimate to me. And I think I shared this last season as we did our live show, but like for my own spiritual journey, even before becoming pregnant, shifting into a place of seeing God as mother has been extremely healing to me because of that closeness and intimacy. And for my prayer life, which is just interesting because I don't really read scripture anymore. I found different ways to stay connected to that foundation through this like meditative book that I've shared on a part of an episode. But when I do, I feel a deep connection to the divine as mother. And so when I do pray, even at dinner at night with our little, I say Amma. And it's this like, it's a part of even this like remothering of myself as I am a mother, am in mothering, and what does that look like? And so I just am curious, I think for each of us, like where we, I mean, that image of God is so profound and how it affects how we see ourselves and how we live out. But I'm kind of curious to hear 
where everybody's at with that and just have a conversation around mothering and that divine peace of God. In the Celtic tradition, one of the things that's so beautiful, I think, is that they talk about Mother Earth. It's the element of everything comes from the earth, and so everything there is sacred. But it's like the earth is the womb that brings forth life. And so I think of, in the Christian tradition, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. So when we become dust again, there's something regenerative that it brings forth life. And my husband and I lost his, his mother died this last year. And when she died, they had made sure that their bodies were embalmed. Their casket is like lined so it won't deteriorate. It's a concrete slab that it goes down into and a concrete in the ground that was poured into the ground to put their coffin into. And then, you know, all the dirt comes on and everything like that. And it was like, that's going to be there for eternity. You know, it's like, and why? And I think part of the reason why I'm bringing that into this conversation is there's this element of somehow we can conquer death, that somehow we don't want to go back into that place of being rejuvenated, remade into something, rebirthed, and be a part of something that I want to say is incredibly eternal. And for me personally, I think I'm a Celt at heart. I think that's part of just what I've found. That's where my heart beats in rhythm. And that's where I feel alive in more of a Celtic tradition of Christianity. And in that, I have to value the cycle of life. And so it's more seasonal. And so for me, God as mother is one of these things that I, I see God as mother so much in springtime so much in springtime. And I love the everything coming to life. And it reminds me of being a mother. And when I was expanding, and I just love your belly right now, Latifah. Thank you, me? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Latifah, got it. Sorry, you guys, sorry, you guys have great bellies too. But, no, but like right now, just seeing your belly, Latifah, is just this beautiful, regenerative space that you've had before. And now it is expanding and holding another. And I think there's something that, and sorry, guys, but you never had that happen to you. You will never have it happen to you. But there is something of connecting to the divine through our body's process of seasons. And even menstruating is a beautiful way yeah. of connecting That's right. to something that it's like this, I have no control over it. And yet my body is doing what it's this incredible thing of going through life and death every month. And that felt to me, when I was menstruating, it felt very connective to God and God as mother. And to be really honest with you, I mourned when I quit bleeding. I mourned. There was a grief in that. There was a great joy, but there was a grief <laughs> in that because there was that connectivity to the cycle of my body reminding me of the cycle of the divine. And I just think that there's something beautiful about having this place of God as mother. During our break just a few minutes ago, Ashley came over and she says, can I have a hug? Mm. And I was like, I just wrapped her and <laughs> held her in my arms and I pulled her in tight and I just felt her Sweet. close to me. And it just was mm. like this moment of like, that's how I want God to come towards me. When I come towards God and said, can I just have a hug? And I believe that God is in every human being. I just think there's divine in every human being. And so when we actually see one another and we can connect and we feel one another, there's like this presence of it being God is bigger than just a male white, you know, I just think he's so much bigger than that. And 
it can be she, it can be they. And, but I mean, there's this kind of expansiveness that's there that we can't really, it's mystery, we can't explain it. And I don't think this means you just have to bear children. That's where I'm saying, I think there's something beautiful in how you bear being human that how does that mean you then connect with divine? And for me right now where I'm at is God is mother, God is father, God is friend, God is sister. And for me, that feels more familial than it does like way out there, something that has to be one thing. So it just feels very fluid right now for me. Yeah. I really like God as mother as one of the ways to see God. And, and so I'm sitting here thinking, what is the work of a mother? And of course that's a hard thing to answer, you know, but you know, a mother is someone essentially who makes room for life. Hmm. And so from that standpoint, I love that. And I think some of us had hard relationships with our mothers, you know, and it's a way to move towards some healing with that. And I also just think God in Exodus, you know, in whatever way this happened or didn't happen, but there's this conversation we read about with Moses and God ends up defining herself as aye, I share aye, which means I will be what I will be. I will be a mother. I will be a father. I will be a friend. I will be a fortress. I will be a safe place. And I think God lets us play in whatever sandbox we need to play in in order to understand an experience. And I do love what Richard Rohr says about God being mystery means does not mean God is unknowable. It means God is endlessly knowable. And we, we've talked about that before, like that. but it bears repeating. God is endlessly knowable as mother friend, father, safe place, you know, living presence. So there's no limit on what you can use to say who God is. Yeah. As I've kind of in the last few years been, at first I would say in a frustrating, painful way, coasting on the edge of like, am I in or out of Christianity? And now I would say like quite comfortably gliding. I don't really care. Yeah. Either way, like I might fall one day, to the right, one day to the left, it, mm-hmm. it's just a bit more fluid. Part of that journey for me has been like, Ashley, you mentioned this off mic before, but I too kind of got in a season where like the term father or he or the masculine form of God, I had a visceral response in my body. And my visceral response was an objection. Not that God could not be that, but that you're not making room for the other side which is the sacred feminine, the mother. And now it's been so interesting as I have fallen in love with my partner who is a man and I love my male friends so deeply who I've had in my life for many, many years and kind of like readopting the sacred masculine alongside the sacred feminine. It's like, I sort of have like a a non-negative visceral response to mother or father. Like I want it to be more fluid than that. I want it to be like more all encompassing all at the same time, which is like another reason why I feel like my friends in the trans community are feel so sacred to me because I feel like they hold that space of the fluidity in a way that feels really profound. I was thinking about it on my first plant medicine journey where I did psilocybin for like a therapeutic healing journey that I talk about in season two at some point. 
one of the things I experienced was a huge awakening of my masculine self. Hmm. And I feel like I have a lot of awareness of my feminine self. Like I love the feminine part of me, you know, but like, I remember like being in my body and like sitting up because I was in my room in my bed when I was doing it with a sitter who was a friend and my shoulders started to like expand and like move backwards. And I almost felt like my shoulders got six inches more broad, (laughs) you know, and I like felt my breast more as like pecs than breast or like, you know, it's, it's, you just have so much embodied experiencing when you're doing plant medicine. And I remember being like, I feel like really powerful and like, and it was exciting and it felt good. And I realized that it was a healing moment for me with the masculine because my divorce really fractured my relationship with the masculine, my relationship with my dad hurt my relationship towards the masculine as in like it fractured my trust. And like, I realized that like, I am also masculine. I am also feminine and it's so good. And the things when I think about the men in my life that I really love, they have this like sacred feminine masculine balance to them. They have this sacred feminine masculine balance to them, like in their energy, like they can be incredibly nurturing and mothering and tender, which we like associate towards feminine, which I don't think we need to necessarily even define feminine as that thing or masculine as this thing. Like, I think it's, it's so much broader than that. And like, that's so interesting to me. And so when I've connected it back to my spirituality, I've just like, I think I've had to like broaden and expand and push out the binary like mother, father, which I'm not saying that that's what anybody at this table is doing, but like, that's how I thought of it was like, God is either father or either mother or like, why isn't there a term for both? Or like, you know what I mean? At the same time. And I have found like as somebody who led a lot of worship music and Christian churches for many, many years that now when I come back into those spaces, which is more rare than often, that is one of the rubs I have is like trying to figure out how to make room and space for the fluidity of the masculine and the feminine in the sacred sense of the divine. So yeah, I mean, I think it's been crucial for me to reconnect with the divine, to feel safe with the divine, to have that fluid space, but also like I'm hesitant to like just say mother God now because like I care so deeply also about my like male presenting (laughs) like counterparts because it's interesting because patriarchy like that has happened in our system for a long time has said like, you know, that the male form should be in power and the female form should submit, which I have major resistance to for many reasons, but also like I'm uninterested in like the female form having power over the male form. I'm interested in a fluid, balanced, equally present system which we just don't have. We don't live in it. And so that's why it can feel rocky. And that's why in religion, it's so frustrating. I don't know. That's my extemporaneous thought. No, I love that. Cause I think that's so true of in my own journey, working through like father wound pieces. And then now in like a, a mother wound season of things. And it's like that coming back together. And I was just thinking about how like witnessing Alan with our little, and there was a moment one night, like I'm just thinking about like, what you associate with presence and what your expectations are and how much like the way you were parented and how much we attribute those certain things to God. And that's a big part of this whole process, right? So there was one night my daughter and I were downstairs and she was like playing with Alan's musical instruments and stuff. She loves this organ that he has. And I was doing some with laundry. And when he came down the stairs, my instinct was that he was going to yell at her 
And I don't know why. Like there was just something in me, like don't play with my stuff or whatever. And he walked up to her in like this gentle way and was so curious, like, what are you discovering here? Like, what are you exploring in this whole thing? And it was like, oh, I wasn't approached that way as a child with curiosity. There wasn't a gentleness there when it came to the masculine. And so that's been like a rework that I've had to do. And part of my huge attraction to him is this like very strong presence and yet this very gentle spirit that comes with that. And again, I, there's a passage that I read as part of a meditation and there's a question in it of God asking in the garden to Adam and Eve, where are you? And I remember one of the really healing moments for me in studying with a rabbi was paying attention to how you read that question. Where are you? Is it accusatory or is it with curiosity and gentleness and care? And so like even thinking about like the way that we read God's voice into scripture, really pay attention to that because it's something that we can inherit and isn't necessarily true of the divine because the divine will, and I think it was Richard Rohr that says this, and I just heard him say recently about how mystics and those who are seeking God will always meet a lover, not a dictator. And I think how true that is. Oh, I love that. Isn't that like that was just, part of oh my gosh, Brene can we just Brown for a interview? moment, just, oh my gosh. Yeah. And I think that's so much of what we're talking about with this table is we've all experienced different ways of the divine as lover. And we're trying to unpack that. Like we've experienced the dictator piece in different ways. But when we're on a spiritual journey, we discover the lover part of that. And that can hold the spectrum of, you know, gender within that. But I just think how we hear that question is really important. And I'm being reparented watching my husband parent too. I will say like, as you know, one of the things that I've done vocationally for a long time is lead music in the church and have been a part for the last five years of a church that really pays attention to pronouns as a way of being hospitable and inclusive to our trans siblings or just folks who have had really difficult personal experiences with male figures in their life. And we haven't, you know, fully replaced all male pronouns. We do use some he's here and there, but we do occasionally also sing she. We do very often I'll replace lyrics with they, them, pronouns. In fact, just this past, the last Sunday that I was there, as of this recording, we did Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. And we replaced the one of the lines with, you know, it's always God, our father, Christ, our brother. And we sang God, our parent, Christ, our sibling. And what I have found over the last five years of leaning into that, which was initially very uncomfortable for me, like I did not understand it before starting at this church. But one of the things that I found is how much I've started to have a visceral reaction to language that would probably be described as masculine. So like war language, war imagery, or any sort of like, there's a lot of violence that we sing about. Like I've, yeah. I've gotten very uncomfortable with any sort of violent lyric or language around conquering, conquering and yeah. yeah. I've done the same way. I understand. Yeah, in fact, you were sort of a part of it. Actually, your friend Aaron Strumpel was a part of it. And I think you maybe co-wrote he did a version of the Our God Almighty Fortress. A mighty fortress, and he changed it to a mighty refuge, well, which what, I just thought you know was what so happened helpful. Is I went to his studio and he played. I mean, he's this amazing artist and one of my favorite, most sensitive, caring human beings. Like, I could not say enough great things about this person. But he wanted to do a hymns album and he showed it to me. And I said, Aaron, you can't use that language. One, that's not who you are. Like, I just know that that's not who you are. You got to change it, man. And he, he had already recorded it, like the vocal and stuff. And then 
like a couple days later, he brought me back. He's like, I thought about you said, and I changed it. And he penned it himself and changed it to our God as a mighty refuge. Well, and the whole album ended up being called a mighty refuge, wasn't it? Yeah, like, and that it, song wow. still makes me cry when yeah. I listen to it. And like, he has one of the very few Christian worship albums that I can still listen to and enjoy. And just and, like his and mine, or <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just don't listen to worship that much anymore. That's just the truth. But Part of it is because my friendship with him is so safe that I associate safety with his music. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, that was it, one of the it things redeemed that, that song for yeah. me in a way that I was like, oh, I can actually still use this otherwise really beautiful song. But that's one of the things that I've noticed is how much it has by changing the way that I think of God in a genderful way, as we talked about in the very first episode of this show or second episode of the show, having a more genderful view of God has made me hypersensitive to a lot of other things that I took for granted in the language that we use in the church. And even, in, you know, that obviously affects the way that I think of and talk to God or really even just people. I mean, I, I feel hyper aware of that. Even now, you know, I keep bringing up the season, Richard Rohr's Universal Christ, which has been out for several years. Great but, book. Great book. But yeah, but like changing the way that I think of the Christ and Christ language has allowed me to incorporate more feminine language even when I think about the Christ. Like, so I don't know if I can articulate this very well, but like, I'm happy to acknowledge Jesus as a human man. Like, that's perfectly fine. But it also doesn't limit me from thinking of the Christ as something that transcends yeah. that humanity. And anyway, that's one interesting thing that I'm curious if y'all have had similar experiences of like how a more genderful theology has informed other parts of your language usage or prayer life or whatever. For a while, I didn't use really any pronouns for God. It was just God and God's self and God. And what I noticed in me, and then I started to notice it in other people, is that for those of us that needed to discard the view of God as only masculine and even violent and dictator, you know, we had to get rid of that. But what we were left with was a sort of nothing God that was very distant and very apart. Hmm. And so then the journey for me became, how do I find a God that is like Alan with your little, you know, coming down and finding us playing. And when we maybe expect to be scolded, we get the opposite. You know, so now I, I can call God, she, they sometimes is really helpful for me. Even, even now more than she is, is they, because then that feels like I'm in a community of friends, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, that's, it's, it's helped me on my journey toward a God that is intimately involved in some way, you know, and I don't know how that works because that it just, that it starts to feel weird too. Like yeah. you know, the personal. They has been really helpful language for me as well. Also in that it helps me feel like I'm mindful of the Trinity or maybe the full nature of God in all of God's forms. It definitely pulled the thread on blood atonement for me, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which like I said to a, a pastor at a, I played a tenebrae service a few weeks ago in Nashville for a very sweet church and group of people. And it might be the only place I'd feel really comfortable playing. I mean, I won't speak too soon, but so far <laughs> in Nashville, I do it like once a year, but I've said, you know, if you still need to be on board with blood atonement, that's okay with me, but I'm just, I'm not on board with it and I can't sing about it, you know? And he was really great and made a ton of safety for me. Like, yeah, no problem. That's not, that's fine with me, you know? And, 
And I think that for me, when I started to expand my vision of the divine as feminine, masculine, everything fluid and in between, and at the time it was even like pre-pregnancy for me and I didn't know if I would ever be pregnant or mother in that specific way because like... Becky, I remember driving in the car with you last season and you talked about how mothering is so much more than bearing a child. And like, I think about my Mm -hmm. girlfriends who long to be moms in the pregnancy form of having actually bearing their own child. And that is not a part of their story. I think about couples where conception is more challenging or it requires money for adoption or IVF or their journey to having their own child is just more complex. Like, mothering is and fathering is so much more than just actually having your own DNA or adopted children. So even before I had that experience, just thinking like, if I had a child, I can't imagine imposing a system where that kind of death is required. If it really was my design, I can't imagine designing a system that demands that particular sacrifice. That's just how I feel. It doesn't quite makes sense to me. When I think about God as the origination of the expansion of love, um, and then that continue to expand or fractal out that we see the patterns repeating in nature. But I also, I do know we see death and life in nature. And so like, I understand it. Like, I'm not saying that that's not a part of it, but I'm just not as quick to just accept, I think, that. And that's just my journey. That's where I'm at. And so like, Luke, the question that you asked is like, yeah, it's definitely influenced. And in some ways that can be really hard because it's like, oh, my back here, just like pulling more threads and like, I'm cold and I want to be covered, but now I have her threads instead of a blanket. Like, you know, it's like, (laughs) it can be frustrating, but like, I think I've come to the other side of it now of like, oh, I have all these threads and like, what's going to be made or what's the design going to be? And I just feel less afraid because now I feel like I've pulled enough threads on the things that made me afraid of the divine or made me suspicious or made me mistrusting or made me believe that God didn't have my best interests in mind, which all of that is deeply connected to purity culture too. Like not having autonomy over my body or being told what my body was for, what it was to serve or like any of those things. Like How it should look. Yeah. How it should look. Like I think now that I've pulled enough threads that the only things left are like really like love and care and curiosity. I'm kind of excited to see what forms out of that more than I am like afraid now to like engage with the divine. Like I didn't ever go all the way to atheism, although I see the argument for that too. Like I'm not offended by my atheist friends. Like, but yeah, so I think like doing the mother God thing, cause my last page six guy album that came out in 2020 used mother God and father God a hundred percent equally on the record. And I got like burned at the stake for that. Those are good YouTube reads, by the way, if you want to go through those comments, <laughs> but that mother piece really did lead to other things, but I'm so glad because it feels a lot better to feel unafraid of the divine and unsuspicious versus the other way. It's funny. I remember the first time I heard, it's probably been in the last 10 years, hearing someone say that like, you know, that substitutionary atonement is not the only way to interpret this story. Right. And I was like, well, I believe you when you say that, but I don't have an alternative. Like it's just, I've heard it. It's the way that I understand, you know, he paid a debt that I could not pay. Like that's sort of the whole 
idea I had around the gospel, which frankly just doesn't feel like good news. Not entirely. I mean, it feels Mm -hmm. twisted. And it's been, I think part of the work of what this show has done for me is give me new language with which to imagine the good news of the gospel, which is, I can't believe that's even language I'm using. You know what I'm saying? Let's see if I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I was in town and we hung out some and, but I've landed at this place of, I'm actually even interested in like revisiting the Bible, which I have not had a relationship with in a very long time. And I used to really, really, really cherish, but wanting to come back to it and read it through the lens of all of the work that God is doing front cover to back is about being with the story that we get of the incarnation of God with us is actually the gospel. That's the actual gospel. The death of Jesus is God being with us in the experience of death and the experience of suffering and the experience of struggle and loss and all of those things. And some of that maybe just be the, the, the amount of grief that I've had to work through over the last couple of years. But that's the narrative I find really compelling now where I'm like, Oh, I do have an alternative for blood atonement. And it is the divine witness of God. And that is far more compelling to me today than atonement ever was in my theological life. I can't believe I said the good news of the gospel. That is just, that is foreign language. Part of that, part of that, how that would make sense to me if I put myself in your shoes and correct me if I'm wrong is, and even connects with what we were saying in the last episode about kids having autonomy over their bodies. It's like Jesus having autonomy over the body, you know, there's still things, I mean, obviously like, I don't really have like a big desire right now to dive back into scripture. I don't know if I ever will, but like, I've read it some, you know, in my life, but like, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like the way that like the story was communicated to me, you know, is that Jesus had to do this because father God required it. Yeah. Which is a very top down authoritative. And that's like Jesus not having an autonomy, so like even when you actually at the beginning of the episode, Ashley said like my body broken, I was like, don't yeah. like that girl. Yeah. Like, like back up that train. Yeah. Like, but it's like, but also I'm like in the middle of my body changing and I am the birth process will change and breastfeeding. I know will change my body. I haven't experienced it yet, but like, I know that my pre-pregnancy body will not, it's that, that is a death. Like that body is gone and now I have this pregnant body and then that will be a death and then I'll have a post pardon body that's is that yeah, the like yeah. and so like in some ways yeah like that's a death and then a new life and it wow that makes sense to me you know so i can work around that but like you have autonomy nobody forced you to be pregnant you know or forced you to go through this process and so like it's a gift it's a sacrifice you're choosing for yourself you know and like i never thought about it but i feel like autonomy might be the theme of our season when I think through all of it, all of our episodes, it's kind of fascinating. Which everything you just described once again points back to Universal Christ by Richard Rohr. <laughs> I need he to read that book. It's really good. Like, it is a really great book. He explicitly points out what we take away from Jesus by saying that his life was taken from him and not that he volunteered himself for whatever, you know. It's still hard for me because of the whole like... I get it. But, which is like, but what I'm saying yeah, is I like, can make space I, for somebody who's like from that perspective... That it's not just like a violent father required son and son had to submit to father because then we're in this power dynamic again, which is not this divine dance to reference ritual again, or this they, or this like... Or this immortal diamond, or... (laughs) (laughs) Naked now. (laughs) See if I feel feel you leaning over and I know you have a lot of rich insight in general, but like, do you have something you want to share? Because I feel like I really like hearing you talk as we talk about these topics. Well, 
I think about you as a friend yeah. and I think about you as a pastor. And sometimes that's not complex as in like that can't fit because I think you embody pastoral and friend and human being really well. Like you're one of the good ones for me that like keeps me like not all pastors are crazy mm-hmm. or like abusive. Or, you know what I mean? So I am actually deeply interested mm-hmm. in like, how do you do it? Like, like yeah. how does it work? Thank you for asking. Yeah. I do think a whole lot about who is God and how does the Bible explain who God is and not. Yeah. So one of the ways that I really have learned to look at the Bible now is absolutely progressive revelation, meaning the Hebrew Bible is beautiful for what it is, which is a Bronze Age document that explains humanity's current conception of who God is. But that's all it can do. You know, so when it portrays a violent God, that's because that is how people saw the gods back then. Yeah. As all gods. All gods. Yeah. As violent. And so I no longer try, I no longer demand. And even the newer covenant, you know, that was a long time ago too. I no mm-hmm. longer demand that it do something that it just can't do. Mm-hmm. In the new denomination, which I'm a part of, the United Church of Christ, they have a comma as one of their symbols. You know, and I asked someone about that, like, what's what's the deal with the comma? I'm seeing the comma all over the place. And what it is, is their way of saying, and they say this, don't put a period where God has put a comma. Yeah, Becky loves that. Oh, I love that. Isn't that great? And that's, I was like, that's something Becky would say yeah. or has said. I have said, I have said, I have said constantly that. said that. I'm not going to yeah. yeah. put a period. Yeah. And it's a denomination that's thing. That is so Christ. cool. So... And I think, you know, so when we say the Bible is the word of God, well, number one, even the Bible says that the Bible is not the word of God. It, from the Christian perspective, the word is the word of God, which is the Christ, not even Jesus, but the Christ, a la Richard Rohr. He says cosmic Christ. Yeah, the yeah. cosmic Christ. Yeah. And another thing that United Church of Christ says is that because we believe God is still speaking. And that gives me can some I, room. Can, so God is still speaking. So God may not just be saying the things he's already said. Right, right. She may have things to say that are new, new right? Things. So it's like God is still speaking. Mm-hmm. I just love that. Yeah. Because if God is still speaking, then obviously there are still things to be said. Or, the Bible can't be the whole. Or the Bible's like really gotten a lot wrong and the divine mm-hmm. is just saying the same thing over and over again and hoping that we mm-hmm. finally get it. Mm-hmm. Like, 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 I yeah. mean, it could be yeah. either. Yeah, it could you be. Like, it's one be. thing I'm thinking of. I like that. And for yeah. me, the beautiful things about the Bible is that it, it, if you read it in a certain way, all of its protagonists are deeply flawed people. Mm-hmm. Almost all, except for maybe Mary. What you a know? titan. You know, <laughs> and right? a woman for goodness. Yeah, yep. you go, girl. Mother. But all the protagonists are flawed. I also think Mary Magdalene gets a bad rap. She yes. does. <laughs> Not a prostitute. Probably Jesus's best friend. And what many scholars think that she was the chief disciple. She was who other disciples really saw as the leader of the disciples. The disciple Jesus loved. That's, <laughs> that's I mean, why yeah. he said what he said. Yeah. You know, I, well, actually, he loved me, but it was Mary, maybe Mary Magdalene wrote the Gospel of John. I also, regarding atonement and sacrifice and stuff... Yeah, I'm curious what you think about that. You know, it's a very recent theology that says that, you know, penal substitutionary atonement, meaning God's wrath was satisfied. And that's very medieval language about, like, you know, if you've heard people 
or seen a movie or read a book where people get into a duel because mm-hmm. someone offends someone else, yeah, you know, you and, have to and satisfy. Yeah, I, I, you you said that about my wife, and so from that standpoint of understanding, something would like I can't let this go. But we don't think about that anymore, and so we shouldn't think about God doing that anymore. And there are much richer and different ways of understanding what did happen, whatever happened on the cross was I now believe much more of what you said, Luke, is that God dying on the cross is God's way of saying, I am with you to the end. I'm with you to the end, even to death and through death. I will go through everything with humanity. And that's a very different, you know, that's a very different perspective. Compels me to want to revisit scripture. And that's a new compulsion for me. Like I, it's not something I've acted on yet. And it's something that I think is going to take a lot of tries before it feels comfortable. But it's like, if the only times I've ever read the Bible through start to finish, which I've done a couple of times, but they've been from this one particular perspective, this one sort of interpretation, part of that being that scripture is inerrant. And I don't want that to be the only experience that I have with what might still be a gift for me, with what might still be a gift from God for my life. I don't want to have my only experience with it tainted by really poor theology or poor interpretation and not nearly enough curiosity, not nearly enough sort of freedom within myself to say like, I don't have to take all of this in. This isn't I'm not looking at a perfect document here. I'm just looking at something that might reveal something beautiful to me. And I don't know, that's the thing that makes me sort of want to come back to it and say like, well, maybe there's something there if I look at it differently, you know? I think the doctrine of inerrancy is a doctrine of certainty, which is the absence of faith, actually. <laughs> it takes Connected to purity culture, too. It takes zero faith if you say, the reason why I believe that the Bible is God's word is because I believe that it is without error. The Jewish mind would laugh at that yes. concept. They don't, yes. they don't even they just, understand. It's just like, not even... Like what? Yeah. yeah. No, the no. Bible's there to Be question debated. and debate and write new interpretations of it all the time, back and forth. And Wrestle and be in a relationship with. Yeah. I've also kind of had this thought in the last year that, you know, like, well, if Jesus was just 2,000 years ago. I mean, human beings have been around for millennia, mm-hmm. you know? And so there is a part of me and I know I'll be met with resistance on this, maybe not from you guys, but from other people is that God has been telling a story for a lot longer Mm -hmm. and previously to just the Christ narrative that we have as Christians. Like, and I feel so resistant to Christianity being like the only way or like the way or the story that somehow like it wasn't until 2000 years ago that God finally let us see how it really all works. Like, I think that like <laughs> totally. the divine has been with us. Like you said, if God's going all the way with us through death and suffering, that means God has been here the whole time. And yeah. so I'm okay with like the story. I'm okay with like Christianity existing. Like I'm not saying it shouldn't exist. And just like every religion wants to be it, you know, I think that I'm resistant to the it thing. Yeah, I'm, yeah. You know, and so, like, Absolutely. so yeah. like I'm not offended by it. I just like, think that it's part of how we as in our culture now understand and belong and tell stories and it's how we can understand our place. And like, it's not because it's like completely false, but it's a part of the truth that how it's been revealed to us and how we've interpreted it. And so I think that like, as I've gotten like more fluid and expansive and open in my own mind and my own heart in relationship to the divine, 
just bringing it back to sexuality because that's what this show is about. Like I, I see such a parallel in my life as I've gotten more open with my sexuality and my desire. When we first started this show, we said it was like a show about spirituality and sexuality. I was like, is it? Like in my mind, I was like, I'm just going to trust that like these people know what they're talking about. But like, I think this is just a show about sex. You know what I say? Like, and then that's honestly what I was mostly interested in. Yeah. Because I was like, Becky, I'm a newborn. I'm out there dating for the first time. <laughs> yes. How do I have sex like consciously and wisely, but also get to have it? Like, mm-hmm. you know, like help yeah. me. <laughs> and like, and I've been so moved as I've been around the table with you guys and now in our fourth season about how like it's such a healthy observation, how intimately they are connected. Mm-hmm. Because like, as I've expanded my definition of sexuality and desire, I've seen it completely parallel in my spiritual life. And I'm so glad because now like there's actual, like, you know, I've talked about threads, maybe those threads and those blankets are part of the threads that are knitting those two things back together, Mm. you know, instead of being like my separate part, like out there that's been cut off by purity culture or whatever it is saying, like, you can't have desire, you can't be connected to this thing. Like, and maybe that's steeped in traditions of hundreds of years ago where we told people they couldn't interpret scripture for themselves and they wanted them to pay more taxes or like who knows what the motivation yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. like it is like really powerful to give people permission to explore both at the same time because like they have keys to unlock doors in each other's spaces, mm-hmm. you know? And- uh, you go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay, okay, I'll go. Uh, <laughs> no, I want to go. I, wanna, I do want to go. I, there's, I just, there's a couple things that just are just like um, bubbling up for me. One is, and my husband uses this line all the time, scripture is a great piece of literature. If we look at it, because there's so many different threads that go through it, but it, if we see it as a great work of literature, we can look at it from a different perspective because of the fact that it is trying to tell a story that's been going long before there was ever the written word. So I think that's one thing. The other thing, too, is I think part of the story has been so scripted to write the feminine out. Yes. And in writing the feminine out, what it's done is it's created this power of erasing Mm. the value of women. Mm. And therefore, but then all of a sudden we need to have this savior come. Well, the only way we can have something born is through a woman. And it's like, so we'll bring her back in and we've elevated Mary up to this like she's Mother God, almost, but yet we not quite, Don't say that. not quite. But she didn't really have, yeah, yeah. she didn't have sex to make that happen because sex is sex right, is bad. right, yeah. and that's one of the things that I want. But part of it is in doing that, what we've actually done is we've erased and silenced places and ways. God, I believe that divine can actually speak. And so when you're talking about Mother God and the relationship you're having right now. I think there's something that's coming alive, Ashley, for you in the sense, and I think we've all kind of touched it in different ways. It all We all touch on it, but to rebirth the feminine and let the feminine come and be partnered with the masculine of God as mother, God as father, God as they, God, I mean, in this beautiful place, what we're doing is we're making space for the thing that you said, endlessly explorable God. Hmm. And therefore, I mean, if I can explain it, it's not divine, right? And I think that's the thing that irks me so much. We want to explain something for certainty. And in, that's why I love the Celtic tradition is they don't want certainty. They want space to explore. Mm, I love that. And see God. And so in erasing the feminine out, some of what we've done is we've silenced something that is actually an essential part for all of us 
it's inside all of us because we're all masculine and feminine. And it's like, I don't even like the term, but I'm kind of like, I am woman, hear me roar. And it's like, no, 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 no. We are humans. Can we reconnect mm -hmm. both together so mm -hmm. that we can learn this language? Mm -hmm. And then therefore, I think of my queer friends and I'm like, oh my gosh, there is space for all at this table. The spectrum is not about where do I fit? Am I over here on the masculine or am I on the feminine? I just want to say, yes, we all are mm -hmm. on this. And I don't have to fill a box in fact, I find myself even being offended sometimes having to check the box mm -hmm. yeah. of being female. And it's like, I mean, and I, I don't mind that I'm a woman, but I'm just, there's this element of, I feel for my transgender friends when they have to go, oh, I have to, which box do I check? And I'm like, can we look and see ourselves as human? Can we be within humanity and for humanity? And that's what I think mother God, father God, they is for humanity you know, it's interesting, you know, not everybody will experience the actual pregnancy of like a body expanding, but everybody has experienced needing space to expand mm -hmm. so that their life can happen. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think that mm. that applies to what yeah. you said 100%. about the Celtic tradition about creating space. Mm. Every person has needed space created mm. literally in order to form and live. Yes. And when we squelch that space... It's death. It doesn't happen. Yeah. Because we're verbs, because we're continuously mm -hmm. evolving and changing and growing, we do need space mm -hmm. to do it. Mm -hmm. There was an interview with John Philip Newell, and I was listening to it with this question of like, what do I do with Jesus? Because that's still like, I'm ready to throw that out all to. And he, at the very end of this conversation, he said, so much in mainstream Christianity, we hold up Jesus as the ultimate perfection, like this mm. to be attained to. And he's like, within the Celtic tradition, Jesus is seen as the great disclosure of what it means to be human. Yes. yes. And that word disclosure, I like was crying, like driving back from the grocery store in the car, like, oh my gosh, because it was, there was this freedom in it. I don't know, because so much of my mm -hmm. existence has been trying to attain something of this person that's but instead to see like the humanity of it. And I also, there's a book called The Book of Longings. Oh, yeah. I love that. Oh, I love that. Love, love, love that, that talks about Sumo Jesus. Yes. yes, thank you. The story of Jesus's wife. And I am so curious, like if we, I mean, that's such a blasphemous idea. Like the fact that Jesus may have had a wife, you know, and, so, and within so many, right, but in Jesus so many contexts, right. Yeah. And I think about the fact that we've idolized this person as a non-sexual being and how has that affected our own view of our own sexuality? And it, it was such a healing book to read and the powerful way that they talk about her. And it's just a stunning book. And that just expanded so much of me, like who I saw as the human of Je like he, humanity of Jesus, the way he's written into this story too. So, well, yeah. you, you just said it. All I'm going to do is underline what you said. But lately, I've really been thinking about Jesus as not the unique one. No one else was like him. Right. But as the full representation or disclosure of who we all are, you know, that we all are filled with the divine. This episode of Fun Parts was produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Braun. Our artwork was designed by the very talented Alan Lusink. 
All the music you heard in this episode was composed, produced, and licensed by the fine folks at blue.sessions.com. Check out our website at funpartspodcast.com and be sure to follow us on social media at funpartspodcast. Lastly, if you want access to bonus and behind-the-scenes content from this and other Milieu Media Group shows, join our neighborhood at the Patreon link in the show notes. And now, here's a scene from the next episode of Fun Parts. I mean, I love, Luke, what you said about we canonize the wrong thing, and I totally agree with you. Like, we absolutely have canonized a lot of crazy things <laughs> and then claimed that it was God's word, you know, or God breathed, you know. And I think that has given people a way to justify the bad behaviors that have perpetuated through time. And it's so hard because we're talking about a story that has been yeah. told and retold and told and retold, you know. So it's like, how do we even really know? <laughs>